there's uh, a song that you might remember uh, from when you were a child uh, by Mr. Rogers. And, uh, you know, he would look right into the camera and tell you, it's you I like. You remember that song? It's you I like. Not the clothes you wear, not the way you do your hair, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> but it's, it's you I like. We, we sing it a little bit differently in our song, uh, which I say is a little bit more theologically accurate. Uh, my wife doesn't like it, uh, but we sing a song around with me and the kids. It's me, I like. It's not the clothes you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. It's me, I like. No, my wife doesn't like it because she's afraid it's going to train the kids. But I, I say, hey, it's just a reality. Let's face it. I like myself. And the, the disciples in this conversation are singing that song loud and clear. As they're pursuing greatness, arguing who's greater than the other one. And then they turn to the other groups and say, well, we're better than that group. It's me I like. And we all struggle with this. And sometimes it comes out in different ways. Sometimes we really puff ourselves up and sometimes we try to keep quiet because we're afraid of bringing our reputation down before other people. Or sometimes we're very depressed because we know our reputation isn't where we want it to be. But we all have this sense of we love ourselves, or as Paul puts it, nobody ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. It's sort of like if you get a cut, the first thing you do is say, well, how, how do I dress this? We love ourselves. We love our reputation. And in our uh, passage here, Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples. We started it last week in terms of their pursuit of true greatness. Uh, they were pursuing greatness in themselves of thinking they're better than other people. Jesus says, no, true greatness is in serving other people, even the least of these. That's what true greatness is. Uh, and then we continue. Uh, and if I were to sum up the rest of the, the conversation, it goes something like this, where Jesus says that the way of Christ, the way of one who follows Christ, should be that we must be far more concerned with the impurities of our own heart than we are with the positions and the posture of other people. Or to say, I must be way more vigilant against the sin of my heart than I am about the dealings with other people. It's not that you're not concerned about other people, but I must be way more uh, concerned with what's going on in here than what's going on out there. Says that's what it means to follow me. So we'll pick it back up, but let's read again uh, 33 uh, into 38. So you kind of see the transition of how this happens. Uh, they came to Capernaum, and this is the passage we saw last week. And when he was in the house, he asked them, well, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. They were busted. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would come or be first, if anyone would be the greatest, he must be the last of all and servant of all. And to illustrate, he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John pipes up and says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. We'll pause there. 
Because there's a big question of how in the world John raises this question all of a sudden. How does he, how does he get there? I mean, we can, we can see his jealousy oozing out, but how, do, how does he get there from what Jesus just talked about? Jesus is just talking about if you want to be truly great, serve other people, receive even the least of these, like the children, in my name or in, as a representative of me or in my authority, and you will be truly great. And then John turns around and says, hey, there was this guy over there casting out demons. We stopped him. Don't worry about it. How does John go from there to there? It's, it's very curious, actually. Uh, one option would be that it's sort of some word association. Jesus had said, if, if you receive a child in my name, whoever does that, they will receive me, and John hears in my name. Sometimes you do this in conversation. It rings a bell. Hey, I saw this other guy in your name casting out demons. What about him? We tried to stop him. Don't worry about that. But what about him? You said whoever. Does, is he included? That's one option. Another option could be uh, that he's, he's simply uh, saying, I agree with what you're saying, but there's a line we need to draw. In other words, okay, yes, I agree that we shouldn't be arguing about who's the greatest. So, okay, so not, among us, among us 12, you're right, there is nobody greater. But let's be clear, our group is better than that guy. Like, we had to stop him. So that, that could certainly uh, be an option. Another one uh, would be that he's trying to save face. Sort of, sort of like saying, okay, I get it. We totally went off the rails among us talking about that. And we, sh- we shouldn't be arguing about who's greater than the other person. But let's, let's just be honest. Our, our, our talk all the way, it wasn't all bad. We did something good. There was this guy over there trying to cast out demons. We stopped him. So do- let's not think that we were that bad. That's another option. Another option is just sometimes you're just not really paying attention. You know, John says, Jesus talking something about, like, being great. No, no. Something. Hey, did you see that guy when we were walking? <laughs> you know, just not really paying attention. Uh, all those, I suppose, are decent options. Uh, what we should notice is at the very end of the phrase, or the sentence, the reasoning behind it. We tried to stop this guy. Why? Because he was not following us. Somehow the disciples have gotten this mindset that in order for anybody else to, to truly be ministering in the name of Jesus, they, they are sort of the, the people, who, the credentialing crew. You, you, you want that authority of, to be in Jesus' name? You've got to come through the disciples because they got, they got the next best show in town. Right? And so it's like they, he wasn't one of us, and so we tried to put a stop to it because we are great. We're something special. So we're still on the same category of what they were just talking about. And John here is being exposed. Uh, this is the only time John actually speaks in the gospel right here. And uh, Jesus responds, verse 39. But Jesus said, to, said, do not stop him. And then he gives three reasons, all beginning with the word for. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Here's Jesus' first reasoning. Uh, it, to be clear, G- what Jesus is not saying is that uh, it's impossible for an unbeliever to do a miracle in the name of Jesus. Because we clearly see in Matthew 7 uh, that some will come to Jesus on the last day, and Jesus will say, away from me, and they'll say, wait, Jesus, we called you Lord, we cast out demons in your name, we did many miracles 
in your name. And Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. So that is certainly possible to, to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, but not actually be a follower of Jesus. That's possible. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, it, this is more along the lines of, look, logically speaking, guys, somebody won't cast out demons in my name and then turn around and say something negative about me because it's just going to ruin what they just did. Their, their reputation about what they're saying. Sort of like if a doctor has discovered you know, some herb and he's all over TV saying this herb will cure cancer and then he's, he's really being touted as the, you know, something special and then he turns around and says, now don't buy those herbs because they're worthless. Like, it wouldn't make sense. Is Jesus saying, look, they're not going to cast out demons in my name and then turn around and say something bad because it will just tear down what they just did. So even just on the face of it, you may not have all the information, but what you don't need to do is put a stop to it because you don't have that information. Just let it be, okay? Because they're not going to turn around and say something bad. Just, 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 just don't be so uptight. Don't draw the line in sand so quickly. And then he gives another reason, uh, verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, here again, I don't think he's necessarily saying that this this person is, is automatically a believer if they're not against you. He's just simply saying, if, if they're not against you, don't be so antagonistic back at them. Draw the line in the sand. Just chill out a minute, right? So it very well could be a believer. It very well could not be a believer. So there, there are, there's places where we should fellowship with other believers. They might be different from us. And we don't need to draw such hard lines in the sand and be antagonistic against them. Now, that doesn't mean we, we agree with them. We can disagree, but we're on the same team, right? And that, that, that's appropriate. But then there's also a, a sense where somebody can be an unbeliever, and if they're a sympathizer, you might say, with the Christian faith, with the Christians, they're not against us. So you might be living in a culture where it's illegal to read the Bible, say. And you have a neighbor who knows that you're reading the Bible in your house, and they don't report you. Jesus says, they're not against you. So don't, 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 if they're not against you, then they're for us. So just don't draw such hard lines in the sand here. Don't be so uptight. Or if it's another believer, I remember in a training thing I was in back down in Chicago years ago, um, somebody was telling one of the pastors there about, uh, at, at school, I went, went to, to Moody, which is dispensational, and they believe in the preacher rapture and stuff like that, the Left Behind series and that. And uh, which, th that church, and I, I don't hold to that, and we don't hold to that here uh, as elders here. You can believe that and be a member here at the church, by the way, but to, elders don't. Going down a rabbit trail, I'm not meaning to here. <laughs> Nonetheless, my buddy is telling one of the pastors at the church, he's like, about, about one of his professors, and he's like, oh, you believe in a preacher after. I can't believe they believe that. He's using this. That's not even what the passage is. I can't believe that. You know, my, the, the uh, pastor's just sitting there listening to it, and then my, my buddy ended the whole conversation, his long uh, monologue about how bad pre-trib uh, doctrine is, and then the pastor just waited, and he was done, and he just said, they love their Bibles, don't they? <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion. Like saying, don't, they're your professors. They love the Lord. They love the scriptures. We're not going to sit and talk bad about them. We can disagree with them on a different doctrinal issue, but we can love them too. Right? So there's, 
Jesus is saying, don't be so hard. They're not with us. Okay, fine. But they're not against us. And so they're, they're for us. Then he gives one more reason, uh, verse 41. Uh, for truly I say uh, to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and he be thrown into the sea. Now this one here, again, we have this idea of reward, which I don't necessarily take as necessarily meaning everlasting reward or eternal reward here. He says giving a cup of water. Uh, in those days, a cup of water would be very uh, needed, you know, if you're traveling and water's not as plentiful as we have it, right? So if, if you're traveling along and somebody in the community offers you water, that's hospitality, that's kindness, that's wonderful. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll bless them, essentially. This is sort of like the uh, God telling Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And, and you watch that unfold as you read the rest of Genesis, right? Uh, Pharaoh takes Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife, into his house, and Pharaoh experiences plagues in his household until he returns Sarah. Those who curse you, I will curse. Meanwhile, uh, when Jacob uh, is put into uh, Potiphar's house, God blesses Potiphar. Why? Because Joseph is there and Potiphar's treating Joseph kindly. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Doesn't mean necessarily this is everlasting reward, but how you care for one of my own, Jesus says, I, I will watch over that. It might be sort of, say, like, uh, let's say my, my son's playing on the playground at, you know, we're at a softball thing, and um, a couple of kids are kind of picking on him or, or something like that. And uh, one of the other kids uh, who's friends with these other two comes over, and he, he kind of puts these other kids that are picking him on in their place, tells them not to stop doing that or whatever. Dupree and now this, this other kid run over to me, and Dupree says, this, Dad, Dad, like these two kids were picking on me, they were shoving at me or saying this at me, and, and this 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 guy here, he told them to stop, and they ran away. Now, I'm, I'm the dad, right? I, I say, man, thanks for doing that. You want to go get some ice cream? Let's go. Let's go get a hot dog. I want, I want, to, I want to serve you. I want to honor you. you. You cared for my son. Now, it, it doesn't make him my son, but I appreciate the care. I say, yes. I, I, and what, what this says, then, what Jesus is getting at is, is more like, I got my eyes on this. You don't need to take control of this. I'm watching those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. You guys don't have to worry about this. Lighten up a little. You don't have to draw the line so hard in the sand and be so antagonistic against people. And now notice what he says then in 41 is the, basically, I will bless them. Those who give a cup of water to my people, I will bless them, I'll reward them. And then he says the flip, flip side. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or, or possibly fall away, well, they're going to have issues. Because it would be better for them to have a great millstone tied around their neck and be tossed into the sea. The, to the sea is thought to be a place of chaos and evil. It's a gruesome picture, isn't it? I mean, this would be taking a great big boulder, one of those that are down by the lake. You know, if you're going down and by, the, by the beach, you see those great big rocks there. Tie that thing up put it around your neck, go out on a boat and have a crane take that rock, throw it into the water, and right? I mean, it's instant. You're down, you're down there squirming around until you are dead. 
Right? Jesus says it'd be better, you'd be better off to prevent yourself from treating one of my people in a way that would cause them to sin or possibly fall away. That would be a better fate for you. To prevent you from actually doing that to one of my people, that's what you should do. This is very harsh treatment against the self to prevent yourself. And notice in 42, particularly, he says, one of these little ones. So remember, in the, in the conversation, in the dialogue, he's, he's holding one of the, a, child, a child, right? And now he's referring to this child as one who believes in me, which we'll see later in chapter 10, one who's vulnerable, comes weak, needy. Here's, here's Jesus saying that my little one who's vulnerable, I care for them. And if you treat one of them poorly, I'm watching and I will come after you. Now, you also start to get a little bit of a shift because where Jesus is going to go is now turn the table on the disciples so as to say, you watch yourself. Because the reality is, is the way I behave, what I do has an impact horizontally, whether I like it or not. Right? And Jesus is getting at, there are ways that you can cause one of my people to sin, and even possibly fall away. Now, how, how is that? I mean, to be clear, we are all responsible for our own sin, but other people can influence us. Right? Sometimes it might be by actually inviting someone to sin. Right? Come do this. Whether Maybe that's something physical, or maybe that's you know, to lie to a spouse or a parent so that you can do some activity. It's this encouragement towards sin. Uh, other times it would be like an indirect. Right? You're not actually inviting them, but it's the things that you're doing. You're giving an example of sin that's actually inviting people into it. So you're gossiping about your boss at work. It sort of invites people into that conversation to actually walk into sin. Or a parent being impatient with their child is training the child how to sin against God by being impatient or saying a sharp word or being harsh. Uh, we could also provoke people to sin, right? That's the command to parents. Uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This is a way of being harsh towards people such that you keep poking at them until they finally explode. There was a kid in my uh, high school, Randy, who would sit in front of me in math class, and I'd sit there and flick his ear. Because <laughs> he would get, he'd get a real bad temper all of a sudden, but I would do that until all of a sudden he'd turn around and he'd yell at me, and the teacher would go, Randy, go to the office. <laughs> I was not a good kid. I'm not, don't take that as a good example. But that's provoking, right? There's ways that our behavior towards other people provokes people towards sin. And then finally, just by being inconsiderate, flaunting our Christian freedom to other people. This is the, the weaker brother causing a stumbling block to another brother, not considering them. Right? So that they, I, what I'm doing is actually free in the gospel, whether that be alcohol or wearing certain clothes or whatever, but I know another one is struggling whether or not there's freedom, but I just flaunt it in front of them such that they go against their conscience and sin against God because they believe that they're sinning. Whatever it is, there are ways that we can influence other people towards sin. And Jesus now starting to turn the tables and saying, guys, stop being so worried about other people and where they're at, their posture, their positions, and worry about what's going on in your own heart. There are things that you do that impact other people. 
There are impurities in you that you need to deal with. You need to be far more concerned with what's going on inside of you than what's going on with these other people around you. And he's going to directly attack this in verse 43 here with vivid language. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and you go into hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut that thing off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have both feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear that eye out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is Jesus' way then of saying, sure, there. Sure, their behavior, it matters. Their position, their posture, it matters. But far more what matters is what's going on inside of you. This is where you see this elsewhere is this idea of take the plank out of your own eye and then go help your brother. You see a brother in sin, first you deal with yourself. You got a plank there. And if you don't do that, you're going to be totally useful to your brother or useless to your brother. (laughs) You'd be swinging around that plank and keep hitting him in the face. You take out that plank out of your eye and you deal with that and then you can go help the little speck in your brother's eye. Now notice uh, the urgency. I mean, this this is meant to be very vivid language, shocking. This cut it off. This is is violent treatment against the body. Now, Jesus is not actually telling us to live this out, which some have taken throughout church history. He's not saying cut off your hand. Just a couple chapters, in chapter 7, we saw Jesus saying, look, it, it's not the external stuff that, that is, is so dirty and makes you unclean. It's what's going, coming from the heart. So you can cut off your hand. It's not going to actually solve the problem inside. He's using an illustration here of vehement, vigilant attack against our own sin and to go after it. If it's going to cause you to sin, you cut that thing off. I don't care what it is, he says. Cut it off. In other words, Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, there is no half-hearted pursuit of holiness. If you pursue half-heartedness, half-hearted holiness, you very well might find yourself in the unquenchable fire of hell. This is strong. This is stark, and it's meant to startle you. It's meant to shock you. A little bit, because it might actually lead to our freedom. Uh, Notice also the the negative deterrent, which is one of the other quick things that stand out to us. How he's trying to deter us from sin with this very negative uh, outcome if we don't flee. So at first he says in 43, to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 47, to be thrown into hell. And then 40. And the 47, uh, 48, where where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So, here, uh, this word hell, uh, perhaps you've heard this, this he's referring to a place called Gehenna. Gehenna was a a trash dump outside the city where they would burn the trash. 
and you would have worms in there that would eat things decomposing and such. Uh, and he's quoting from Isaiah, the very last line of Isaiah that's referring to the judgment and salvation to come. And he's call, pulling up all this imagery to say, now look, if you are not going to go against your sin with everything you have, so how do I explain the outcome for you? Well, you know Gehenna, right? Where that fire burns. Well, the best I can do for you to think of the eternal judgment of God is to be thrown into a place like that where there's fire going. But guess what? The worm never gets burned up. There a worm might die. But in eternal judgment, it goes on forever. The fire's never quenched. The worm never dies in an experience being burned forever. Now, this is not the only way Jesus describes hell. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. One way he describes it is utter darkness, which almost feels like the exact opposite here, right? Because this is fire, which is bright. He describes hell as utter darkness. So what you have going on is as Jesus is describing hell, he's using pictures. Right? So we, we, we don't even have to think that hell is itself going to be fire. It may but that's not what we're supposed to get out of. This is a picture, which we don't then say, oh, well, thank goodness that hell might not be fire. So it won't be that bad. No, that's not the way an illustration or an image works. Actually, the image is sort of like the best you can do. The reality is a lot worse than that. So Jesus is calling up a picture that's supposed to be gruesome. It's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be alarming and say, that's the best your mind can do. It's far worse than that. And this, this, is, this is meant to awaken us, to keep us alarmed, to keep us on our toes. And we need a passage like this. Because let's face it, there are times we are very lax against our sin. Is it not? Because we like our sin. We sin because we do like it. We get some sort of a brief, temporary enjoyment. And so we take half-hearted measures to fight against it. And so we need a passage like this. By the grace of God, this is meant to be God's grace to his people to shock us back on track. And then Jesus continues, uh, 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And then the conversation ends. So notice here then he comes to a new illustration at the end of the conversation to sum up his point. At the very center of the illustration is salt. And salt uh, in those days was very useful. It's useful in our day. Uh, in those days it was useful for preservation, so preserving meat. So you could have meat for several days also for flavoring of food, like we would use it uh, today, and also for cleaning, or cleansing, cleansing a wound, whatnot, putting salt into a wound and, and helping that uh, cleanse it. Uh, their salt uh, could, could be impurified. So if another element got into the salt, uh, it could actually make the salt useless to them. It's, it's not going to provide the flavoring and the preservation if other things get into the salt. So you have to keep the salt uh, pure so that it's actually useful. And so when he closes the conversation then, the, the first way he talks about everyone's going to be salted with fire, 
It's a lot of conversation on what that one means because it could mean uh, in Old Testament sacrifices were supposed to have salt on them as a sign of the co- God's enduring covenant. Uh, it's also a way to take this that uh, the, the pains of life, the suffering of, of life will, will form you into salt that will be useful for God's kingdom. At any rate, the, the next two are a little bit more clear. Salt's good. It's useful. But if its impurities have gotten into it, like he's telling us to cut off the impurities, if impurities get into it, it's no longer useful. You will be no longer useful in the kingdom. And then he closes it saying, have salt in yourself. Be useful. Be purified, which will result in having peace with one another. So again, I think Jesus' whole main point in this section then is we must be far more concerned with the impurities of my own heart than what's going on horizontally with other people. Doesn't mean it's not important, but far more important is what's going on in my own heart. Now, this is a passage I think we need as God's people for several reasons. First of all, uh, because we're very quick to flip that. So, even as you think about that, the, the idea that Jesus made point, we need to be far more concerned with the sin of my own heart than about the sin of other people or the shortcomings of other people. Who, who can you think of that you know that could really use that message, that it would be really helpful for them? Now, if you're like me, I, usually I can think of a couple people really quick, but I'm not on the list. And that's part of the point is we're so quick to, to be able to think and see the shortcomings and failures and idiosyncrasies, all this about other people, and we're blind to what's going on in our own heart. We're so quick to flip it. Because it feels better to be more concerned about your sin than my sin. Right? I actually feel better about myself when I do that. Because I'm doing exactly what the disciples want to do. Put myself up higher. Because you got issues. Not me. And then I can just point to your issues, and I don't have to do the hard work of fixing it. I just point to the problem. And then I can go on my merry way. I can also virtue single signal with this. Because it's like, look how much I care about holiness. Because see them? They're bad. And now I don't have to deal with my own stuff. So we're very, very quick to flip this. To say, we must be far more concerned with the sin of other people. And don't be so concerned with what's going on in my own heart. Well, what impurities are in your heart do you think need a lot more attention? That Jesus, if you had a conversation with him over lunch after the service or coffee, and he would poke at it and say, right there, I'm, t- I'm saying cut that off. I don't want any more half-measured attempts. I want you to cut it off. A second reason I think we need this passage as God's people is because if we were to pursue this, be way more concerned about ourselves than other people, we actually become very useful for other people. If, if we don't do this and we're always concerned about the speck in other people's eyes and not concerned about our own plank, we're not very useful. Right? Because we become very self-righteous, we become proud, we think we have the answers and we just do this and do that and fix it. We don't actually have battle wounds. If you pursue this, you will have battle wounds. 
because you will realize just how much layered you are with sin. You know, like the Apostle Paul gets to the end of his life and says, I am the chief of all sinners. There's nobody worse than me. It's because he keeps looking in and going, man, there's still more? There's still more? Or like if, if some people have described the, the Christian as like an onion. You peel off one layer and there's another stinking layer inside. Very stinky. Makes your eyes water, right? And, and the more you peel off, the more you see. And you get these battle wounds that suddenly you don't have all the answers. I'll come alongside this brother or sister. I don't have all the answers, but I'll come alongside you. And you begin to have battle wisdom to know when to keep pressing and know when to, to lay off. But you're, you're also not going to let just people just coast along in their sin because you, you realize that that's not going to help you. But I'm going to love you and come alongside of you. So we actually become useful if we pursue what uh, Jesus is calling us to. But lastly, uh, why this passage, I think, is so helpful for God's people is because it's an invitation to life, an invitation to freedom. This is not just Jesus saying, that's bad, you cut it off. But he's going, come to life. Enter life. So this, this part, we can't, we can't miss this part. In every, all three of those times when he says, cut it off, gouge it out, it, it, you, know, you don't want to go into the lake of fire, on the other side of the coin, he says, it's better to enter life, the kingdom of God. Come to life. You, what you don't want to do is shrink the world down to your own self, where you're the greatest, and you live for your own kingdom. Don't do that. That's miserable. You know what that's like. That sin that constantly promises you to give you everlasting joy, never satisfies. It never fulfills what, the, what it promises. Sin cannot do that. And Jesus is trying to take our hands off that and say, come to life. Don't settle for so much less and live for this world, for live for yourself and live for sin. That will never do it. You cut that off and come and taste and see that the Lord is good and the Lord can satisfy your soul and you'll have life everlasting. So in one way, he's saying, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of that movie, 127 Hours. It's, by, uh, it's about this guy named Aaron Rals Ralston. He was uh, hiking out in Utah and uh, going down in the, the canyons or whatnot. And as he was going down, a boulder was coming down, and he put up his hand to stop it, and his hand got stuck by a boulder. And for 127 hours, he is there in the cavern. Nobody knows where he's at, and he's stuck. He can't move his hand. And eventually, um, the way he got out was by cutting off part of his arm with a little dull uh, pocket knife. That was his only way of survival. But here's his options. I lay, sit here and die with both hands, or I cut off one of my hands and I live. And I go on and he got married and had, had a son and such. That was his only hope. So he cuts it off and he he goes to live. Jesus is saying, take drastic action and pursue life. Don't just hang there and have both hands and then lose it all. That does not satisfy. I can't do it satisfy you. But I'm, I'm promising you life. So this would be like uh, if you have any kind of food sensitivities, right? whether it be against peanuts or certain fruit or... Uh, gluten or something, where you eat a certain food and it makes your tummy feel terrible. 
Now, if you have one of these things, you, you, you know, and if you don't have one of these things, you might not know that sometimes you can still be tempted to eat the food that you know is going to make you feel miserable. Because it looks so good, it smells so good, and you've tasted it before. And so you can look at the pantry or whatever it is, or look at that pizza, and you say, man, I know I'm going to feel sick in 30 minutes. But that first five minutes, it's going to feel so good. And so you're tempted to eat it. And you feel miserable. And what Jesus is saying, look, the sin that you're pursuing can never satisfy you. So flee that and pursue something so life-giving. Come to, the, come to the Lord. Live under him. Follow him. And he will give you great joy, everlasting joy. But this, like when you're thinking of food sensitivity, this is where the analogy would break down because oftentimes your other solution is like carrots or you know, some lettuce or something. That's all you get. Not very satisfying. Jesus is saying, no, I'm, I'm calling you to a feast. Come to the living water. You drink of this and you'll never go thirsty again. Come to a feast of rich wine and good meat that will satisfy your soul forever. And that's what the Lord is calling us to in this passage, saying, look, don't be so concerned about everything else going on around you. Look at the sin within you. Flee it and flee to the Lord and find everlasting joy for satisfaction in your soul. And with that, we will move towards uh, the Lord's Supper as God's invitation to us to come and taste and see that the Lord is good, paid the penalty for the wrath of God to come for those who worship Christ and live under his authority and come drink from the water, which will never run dry. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning and you worship Jesus as the Christ and are seeking to walk in repentant faith, you are welcome to come and join in the meal. If you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, or you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you do not walk in repentant faith, uh, then we ask that you not partake. Scripture says it would not be good for your soul. But if you're here this morning and you worship Jesus as the Christ, uh, you're not walking in perfection, but in direction of following the Lord, then we invite you to come. Grab the elements and then return to your seat and we will partake together.